Hello and welcome. You're listening to Law and Legend with your hosts Rick Scott and Sebastian O'Dell. Law and Legend brings you myths, legends and fables from the world of folklore and mythology. We tell stories the way that they're meant to be told and we do it in the style of traditional storytelling, enriched with traditional music and dramatic audio work. This series of Law and Legend is called The Gates of Dream, exploring tales of encounters between the heroes and heroines of Greek myth and the gods and the spirits of the Greek underworld, the lands of dream, death, and darkest fate. This episode comes to you thanks to the contributions of our Patreon subscribers, story folk Christy Carson, Paul Jackson, and Sean Powell. Thanks to all of you for your generosity and your enthusiasm for our stories. Please consider joining Christy, Paul, and Sean in supporting the podcast by becoming a patron. For more details, you can visit our website and click support us. In this, our fifth episode, a troubled youth is exiled from his city for killing a murderous tyrant, but he is destined to soar high on the wings of Pegasus. From storyteller Rick Scott and featuring the music of Michael Levy, Sakilo, and Caleb Hennessy, this is the hero's dream. The stranger had listened to the holy man's tale, and around them the glare of torches and the notes of the stringed instruments and the low voices of the priests filled the fragrant air in the temple of Asclepius. And when Polyides was finished, the stranger began to speak himself with great intensity. Your story is well told, and now I understand the power of this god and his cult of dreamers. But old man, this city of Corinth, it's home to more than gods. To me it seems to be haunted by ghosts. And I hear stories. They say that the spirit of a king will startle any horse that crosses the racing grounds beyond the city. That a prince of Corinth once destroyed an evil spirit. And that same prince, they called him a slayer and sent him into deep exile. You are a seer. Do you see truth in those tales? Polyides bowed his head. The one you speak of is real, and the stories are true. His name at one time was Ipanus, but the people now, they've forgotten it. He was the prince of Corinth. His father and his brother, they shared a madness. His father was the king of Corinth, and he taught his horses a taste for human flesh and blood. And then he starved them, so that in the heat of battle and in sacred games, they would chase the other riders with wild strength and hunger. And then when the king had passed them, he steered them with the bit. But when he raced at the funeral of Pelias against the Argonauts, his own horses threw him down, and they feasted on their master's own flesh. The prince's brother had the same disease. Deliades, he was called. And barely was the crown upon Deliades's head when he turned against the elder men of the city whom he hated with a consuming passion. He whipped up the people into fury and bloodlust, made blade men wealthy lords, watered the farmlands with patrician blood. And he made the people sacrifice to a new god, Belaros. Then he made a mask of bronze to cover his face and demanded that the people address him by the same name. And when the prince spoke out against his brother, pointing to his tyrannies, his brother screamed at him as one possessed. Who is Deliades? Belaros is here. If you see one who looks like Deliades, then it is a defect of your eyes. Well, late in the year, at the sacred games, the prince went out onto the field and he took up the discus and he hurled the missile 
but he hurled it so that it struck the tyrant's forehead and shattered his mask, and he fell down dead upon his throne. And when the people screamed at the prince that he had killed his own brother, he answered, I have killed only that tyrant, Belarus. If anyone sees one like Deliardes, well, then it is a defect of their eyes. And quietly the stranger murmured, Old man, I think you tell it true. Polyides continued, Yet those people called him Slayer, and they forced him from the city, crying that the Furies would curse his blood. And the prince fled along the roads into exile, until he reached the palace of Tyrans in the Argolids, and there he was given sanctuary by its king, Proteus, who by the sacred power of his kingship washed the prince clean of all defiling blood, and made him a youth of his court. And there he had all the time in the world to perfect himself in the ways of manhood, in the service of this new king and court. For a time, all was well, until the day that Proteus's queen came to him, shaking with fury. Svenabea, was Proteus's wife. The cattle queen of the Argolids, they called her, for through her family, Tyrans had been made rich in those sacred animals. Svenaboa went to her husband, the king, and she said to him, My lord, I can barely speak it that you should know. But that Corinthian prince, he tried to force me to lie with him in love, although I was unwilling, said that he that he knew my intent by the letters I had written him, by the signs that I had given him, that I had favoured him with my eye. So she spoke, and anger took hold of the king at once. Yet he shrank from seizing the prince, lest he be accused of breaking the holy rites of sanctuary. So instead, that king, he thought of another way to revenge himself. He summoned the prince, and the king handed to him a folded tablet and asked him to deliver it to King Iobates, the queen's father, who lives across the sea in Anatolia, the city of Xanthos, in the kingdom of Lycia. And when that prince had crossed the length of the Middle Sea and come to the palace of King Iobates by the river, that king greeted him with open arms like a son, for nine days he entertained him and feasted him with sacrifice of nine oxen. But after the nine days were done, and the rosy fingers of the tenth dawn were showing, then the king began to question him, asked to be shown the letters, whatever missives he might be carrying from his son-in-law, King Proteus. But when the prince yielded the tablets and the king unfolded them, what was there set his teeth on edge. They said, pray, remove the bearer from this world, for he attempted to violate my wife, your daughter. At this, the young man's eyes flared. False words, he said, false vision. This story I have not heard. What strange legend is this? What is it that you see? But Polyides was not finished. His voice rose again. Once again, he said, the divine laws of the household protected him, for King Iubates would not kill a guest whom he had welcomed, sat at his table, and feasted under his roof for nine days. So instead he called the council of his men of war, and he summoned the young prince there, and he requested his aid against the enemies of Lycia. There was one he claimed called King Amasodarus, who had succoured and raised a monstrous beast, an offspring of the titan gods called Chimera, and he had released it to ravage the crops, the cattle, and the towns of the mountains and the countryside. And this thing of immortal make, breathed raging fire, was a fearful creature, great, swift-footed, and strong, with three heads, one of a grim-eyed lion, 
in its hinder parts a draken, a dragon serpent, and in her middle a goat, an ibex that breathed forth a fearful blast of blazing fire. And this monster, it burns up the crops of the field, poisons the wells and the rivers, and it dines on the flesh of men and cattle. But I tell you true, King Iobates' intent was not that this young prince should triumph where a host of men had failed, but instead that he should utterly perish in the attempt. Unable to stay still longer, the stranger leaps forward. He catches the priest by the wrist. Is it true? Speak to me, tell me, are you speaking the truth? And Polyides pulled away his arm and answered him sternly. What? Has a single word been wide of the mark? Do you argue with any of it? Why have you returned here to Corinth, Bellerophon? The traveller pulled back his hood. He was a dark-haired youth. The light from the tripods flashed in the dark pools of his eyes like fire in the smith's forge. Did you know me from the start, old man? He asked. When I was at the palace of Tyrins, I thought myself the most happy that a man could be. I truly believed myself clean of my father's madness, my brother's blood, Yet I must not be clean, because the dark fates, they mock me still. My task, you say, it's no hero's mission, but a death sentence in disguise. And Bellerophon turned his blazing face towards the image of divine Asclepius. Oh, seer, I say, I say I must be some cursed thing for these gods to laugh at. Slayer. They called me thrice-blamed slayer for the service that I did, although I freed them from the yoke of my brother's tyranny. Polyides placed a hand on the young man's shoulder. I should be careful where you fix those eyes that burn so fiercely, slayer, he said. The gods have blinded men for less forceful glances. But listen. I say that you are a hero, slayer of Belarus, and blameless in your deed. For know this, that whom you think of as your father, they were not. But you were born by your mother to dark-haired Poseidon, he who commands the seas and shakes the earth. There, in that you're half cleared of your brother's blood already. And you were born to slay monsters just as you slayed him, when of some evil demon he became possessed. You will complete the trials that King Iobates has set for you, and then you will bring the vengeance of the gods back to Xanthos, and from there back to Argos. You will be the bright spear of the gods, Bellerophon. At the Pyrene Spring, here in Fair Corinth, you will find a mighty steed worthy of a hero, drinking from the sacred waters. He is winged Pegasus, swift as lightning, who was born from the blood of Medusa and the foam of Poseidon's great sea. That makes him your brother, Bellerophon, and he will know your voice. But he is savage in spirit and will not let a mortal man mount him, not unless you have divine help. So if you would tame Pegasus, you must turn to Athena. Athena is the patron of heroes, and she is ready to meet you if you will do what I tell you, and if, when you see her, you do everything just as she tells you. After he left Polyides, Bellerophon went to the sanctuary of Athena and spoke to the priests. He told no one who he was. He made his offerings, but he said that he must be allowed to sleep on top of the altar, beneath the gaze of the goddesses wood and iron idol. And there, as he slumbered in the cloud of sleep, the image of grey-eyed Athena, daughter of Zeus, 
carrying a sword of pure lightning, stepped down from her pedestal and stood over him in the temple's chamber. She addressed him. Are you Prince Corinth? Here, take from me this charm, which will soothe the savage spirit of Pegasus. Show it to Poseidon, your father, dedicate it to him with the sacrifice of a white bull, and he will sanctify its power and your purpose. Such words. As he lay slumbering in the dark, it seemed the maiden of the shadowy Aegis spoke to him. And then Athena, she bent down, and she placed into Bellerophon's hands a bridle of white, burning gold. With a start, he awoke, and he leapt at once to his feet upon the altar. But all signs of the goddess had fled. Her great idol of wood and iron it was motionless. But looking down, Bellerophon saw that the golden bridle was real. It was cradled there still, in the palm of his hands. And so you see, the dream had become a reality. Now the Perini Spring lay at the heart of Corinth, along the road to the harbour, and under the site of the great rock of the Acro Corinth, where the city had been founded by King Sisyphus himself. The spring was enclosed within chambers and columns of white marble, out of which the water flowed into a wide basin beneath the open sky. And here poets, and artists came to drink, because it was sacred to the muses. And many wished that by night they might also become inspired by a glimpse of that elusive Pegasi when it came to drink. So after he had made his sacrifices to Athena and Poseidon, Bellerophon approached the place under the cover of darkness, and he waited until he saw a ghost-white horse flipped into view on the distant horizon. It wheeled across the sky upon its wing, and it touched down upon the road, and it approached the spring to dip its silver hooves in the cool water. And as he watched, Bellerophon felt amazement in his heart, for he had seen no thing more beautiful, not in his thoughts about the heavens or the gods or in his vision of Athena or any dream or reality that came before that day. Well, clutching the golden bridle and with mighty strength, Bellerophon flung himself upon the horse. A man and horse they wrestled until finally Bellerophon was able to catch the head of Pegasus and bridle and slip the bit between the horse's teeth. At first, it seemed the charm had no effect. Pegasus stamped down with his hoof, and the founts of the spring cracked open wider so that the waters foamed and whirled about their feet. But then, Pegasus calmed. The charm did soothe his wild anger. But as he bridled him and led Pegasus from the city, Bellerophon had to gaze only once into the dark and stormy eye of that stallion. A man and horse both felt that truly they had found the brother of their heart. And Pegasus was magnificent. His heart, it was a great war drum, which beat out thunderous tremors in his chest. Bellerophon could feel his breath as hot as the bellows which fired the blacksmith's forge. His hooves, which struck the ground with a sound like the clash of a hundred spears on shields as they resounded in the valleys around a city besieged. 
and the wings of the great white horse unfurled above Bellerophon's head. And they climbed with sudden force, sucked up into the streams of the air. And the fields and the roads and the stone palaces and temples of Corinth diminished rapidly beneath them, spread out below like patterns embroidered on some great tapestry. A thousand leagues all compassed in an instant by the hero's eye. Bellerophon thought, this must be what it was like to see the world from the heights of Olympus itself. To see with the eyes of a god. Swift Pegasus swept across the skies of Greece, bearing dark-eyed Bellerophon upon his back. They crossed the Aegean Sea to Anatolia, and into the skies of Lydia. Beyond it there was Lycia and the flaming mountain where the fearsome Chimera stalked the high cliffs, but as the skies were grown dark, Bellerophon and Pegasus descended to rest. They sheltered in the lush forests, and they came to rest by a clear spring under the tall dark ilex tree, which when it bubbled and chattered, seemed to make a sound like weeping. The sound made Bellerophon wonder after the spirit of that spring. And from the trunk of the tree, its dryad answered him. This spring is called the Tears of Bibbus, that unhappy girl. She was a princess of Militas, courted by many young men. But she and her brother Kaunos, they burnt with immodest affection for each other. One day, Biblis sent him letters, and in them she asked him why they could not live like Zeus and Hera, who are husband and wife as well as brother and sister, and he fled away because she had given shape to his own thoughts and to her desires. Biblis ran after him, went wild into the woods, until at last, unable to keep up the chase, she threw herself down here in the long grass, and she cried her tears until her body melted away like ice melts into the black earth. And we, the nymphs of the forest, made here a rill forever flowing to remember her. The voice of the tree in the spring faded until its gasps and sighs one with the mournful bubbling of the spring. And Bellerophon, gazing at the star fires in the sky above, softly spoke to Pegasus. Why do the gods shape such black fates for us? What demons do they allow to throne themselves in our hearts? What kind of court and what kind of law does Zeus truly keep up there on the heights of Olympus? Well, Bellerophon could ask, but there were no answers from the horse or from the sky. And in the morning, Bellerophon mounted Pegasus and ascending into the sky, they crossed the last lengths of the trails into Lycia where they came within sight of the flaming mountain. There, flame and fire burst from the slopes in steaming jets, from gaps in the rough stone and rock. And below those flaming fields stood the temple of Hephaestus, where the citizens of Phasis and Lycian Olympus worshipped the god of the smith and his furious forges buried in the depths of the earth. 
on the slopes of Mount Chimera, the monster itself roamed, ravaging the wealth of the shepherds and farmers who lived between the crags. The monster stalked the land. It had the head of a great maned lion, and one of an ibex with gargantuan horns curving almost into circles, and a whipping, snapping Draco's head that struck about at anything which stirred in the grasses about its feet. And each day at dawn, the mad king Amasodorus released the creature from its cave, sent it out into the countryside to satisfy its ravening hunger for fire-cooked flesh. And on the fields and paths far around could be seen the charred bones of fighters destroyed by the monster. Bellerophon and Pegasus circled until they spotted the beast. Then, spurring Pegasus forward, Bellerophon dived towards the creature. As Pegasus turned in swift and sharp circles, the Chimera's three heads trapped them, wheeling each one in different directions. The lion's head hit them with deafening holes. The drake whipped out to catch Pegasus by the hoof or by the wing. Between them, the braying head of the ibex followed with a baleful eye, the sack of its throat welling with kindled flames before it lashed out with a stream of fast-flowing fire, which charged the air and caused Pegasus to buck and buffet in the cross-streams. Bellerophon leapt up on the horse's back, balanced by the curl of his toes upon the spine of the great horse, and he reached behind his back to draw forth his arrows and his spears, which he then whipped towards the three-blooded beast, one missile after another. But though hurled with heroic accuracy, Bellerophon's sharp points would not penetrate the monster's flesh. The spears lodged in the monster's leathery hide. The arrows bristled and the creatures flared rough and naked. And they darted heroes and monsters back and forth across the fields between the guttering fountains of the flaming gurzes and a whirling dance of wings and teeth and talons and spear tips. But not for a moment did the monster slow, nor did the whiplash motion of its three heads tire of striking out at Pegasus whenever he came close by only a hair's breadth from danger. And in desperation, Bellerophon spurred Pegasus up towards the dagger-like crags of the mountain. And with her iron hooves and resounding cracks, Pegasus struck off great boulders from the rocks, which Bellerophon swung up into the cradle of his arms, and still balanced upon the back of the horse, hurled them down from a great height towards the canyon. But even this failed, for the drake's head battered away the rocks. The blast of the ibex's breath exploded them and the lion it roared with such strength and ear-splitting power that often Bellerophon pitched the boulder too short or too far from the mark. The battle continued until even the strength of Pegasus threatened to weary and Bellerophon's anger hadn't focused him. A jet from the throat of the ibex seared his fire and the hero and the warhorse retreated at once across the brow of the mountain. On the other side, they descended across the flaming fields to the temple of Hephaestus. Bellerophon went inside. He stood before the altar and the image of the smith, Hephaestus lifting his hammer to strike upon his anvil. And before the image, Bellerophon made fervent prayers. And when he opened his eyes, they lighted on the place where the god held a rod of lead against the surface of the anvil, ready to receive the blow of his hammer. At once, Bellerophon vaulted up upon the pedestal, climbed up to the anvil, and he seized the raw lump of lead. And then his hands moving with fast and sure work, he bound that lump of lead to the point of his spear. With 
Then Bellerophon and Pegasus swept back across the mountainside. The gleam of the descending sun on the golden bridle attracted the eye of the Chimera's serpent head, which hissed and arced towards them as Bellerophon urged Pegasus into a steep down. Pegasus flexed away from the serpentine's attack, but as he twisted in its flight, the horned head of the Ibex snapped around and opened its jaw to immolate them in its stream of fire. But with lightning dexterity, Bellerophon extended his shoulder, thrusting the point of his spear into the yawning gullet of the Ibex. The Chimera's breath streamed forth as the hero released the shaft of the spear. Fire seared the air across the mighty flank of Pegasus and it singed the skin of Bellerophon's back. But the lump of lead from Hephaestus's anger was now lodged by the spear in the monster's mouth, and on the instant it came into contact with the fire and became white hot liquid, which oozed down to the gullet of the beast. And then that fast cooling metal hardened, and the beast's breath, it was stopped. Bellerophon and Pegasus winged away, and as they did so, the Chimera vomited fatal screams, coughed up curls of black smoke. The Ibex head beat its great curved horns upon the ground. The dragon head gasped and writhed. The maned lion, it choked on its roar. Unable to contain its own fierce heat, the Chimera exploded through the cage of its wings the flames lapping up to consume its underbelly, the body crumbling like charcoal in a fire. And from his post upon the Chimerian mount, King Amasodorus threw down his scepter and he screamed out his fury. Bellerophon had done the impossible. But of course, when news reached Xanthos, the king was not happy. And what he did next was send messengers with other impossible tasks for the hero to accomplish. And so Bellerophon fought off bands of raiders on the borders of the kingdom. He captured and killed a fleet of rampant pirates that menaced the coast. He was even sent against the Amazons, the warrior women of Lesbos. And they, with their fearsome war bellows and well-aimed missiles, they almost succeeded in bringing down Pegasus. But making war music once again in the mountains, Pegasus broke off rocks from the steep climbs. And this time, Bellerophon's aim was true and the ranks of warrior women were crushed beneath the hurled boulders into blood and flesh and bone. There was no obstacle that could stand in the hero's way, not while the gods were behind him, nor could it stop the anger that was building in Bellerophon's own heart. And eventually, Messengers brought word across the plains back to the king at Xanthos. Bellerophon had not been summoned, but he was returning. He advanced across the kingdom until he came to the plain of Xanthos. And with fury in his heart, Bellerophon raised his hand and his voice to heaven. And he called out to the sea, called out to his father, great Poseidon, to drown the land in his fury. The waves rolled and the foam roared. The sea surged into the Xanthus, scattering Nereids like frail children before the crashing power of the sea god's war horses. The armies of Iobetes were instantly drowned or they fled to higher ground. And before the fast rolling waters, there walked Bellerophon. Astride Pegasus, the horse's wings folded back against its flanks, 
and as they made their steady progress. Every farm and group of soldiers that they passed that belonged to the king were consumed by the whelming waters. And then they saw the first women. A line of them were stood across the plain, standing at the crossroads, at every stable and shepherd's stile, and each maiden stared defiantly towards Bellerophon. As they did so, they lifted up the broad hems of their skirts, and they exposed their sex to the hero and to earth-shaking beside them. Bellerophon averted his eyes, so did Pegasus. In gazing at the ground, they passed the first woman tentatively, but they soon halted their advance, because the only sound now was coming from the rippling breeze which stirred the skirts of the women in their hands. And glancing backwards over his shoulder, Bellerophon saw that the sea was no longer at his heels. Poseidon's potent waves had fallen limpid into the slush and the grass of the earth, and lay in pools that shrank far behind the steps of man and horse. And so, with his cheeks burning red, and fury still in his heart, Bellerophon turned Pegasus about, and they retreated across the plain of Xanthros. The waves ran back before them, into the sea. But, although the women had saved the city from destruction, the people quaked before the power that Bellerophon had brought to bear on them. The fruits of their fields lay in ruin. Their warrior sons had been drowned in the waves. Ayubetes met Bellerophon out on the stripped and wasted fields, and he threw himself down at the hero's feet, grasping his knees in supplication. Son of Poseidon, he gasped. By your deeds, I can see you can be no other but son of a god and I beg your mercy and I hold you to be blameless of any of the crimes of which you've been accused and so Bellerophon rode victorious into the city of Xanthos astride his steed Pegasus and the people there all knelt down before him and the king gave the hand of his other daughter, Svenaboa's sister, Philonai, in marriage. But Bellerophon, he was not finished. Next, he returned to Tyrants, and he seized the queen Svenaboa from the fortress and flew her on the back of Pegasus to Argos, to a bacchanal where the citizens were overcome with the madness of Dionysus. He subjected her there to jeers and rough music before pushing her from the back of the horse so that she fell through the air down into the arms of the screaming crowd. Her own three daughters were among the throng, and from that day forward they took leave of their noble senses. They became many ads, women of the wild god who roamed the mountains and set upon travellers to destroy them in their ecstasies. Bellerophon was made a lord in Lycia. Iobetes ceded a full half of the kingdom to him, gave him rich grain fields and fine vineyards on the plain of Xanthus and its river. But Bellerophon was fated to be unhappy. His heart was forever restless. He never forgot that he was an exile. And the people never forgot the pain that he had caused them. In low voices and whispers, they often called him tyrant, as they had his brother. 
Always Bellerophon believed his pains unrewarded by the immortal gods. In time, the water retreated from his lands, the same way that the waters had retreated from the city before. His fields and his vineyards dried up, refused to yield their grain and their fruit. He had three children with his wife, but two of them had their lives taken by the gods. And one day, as he looked over the ruin of his estate, Bellerophon cried out bitterly. Oh, dreams, he said. What nonsense you were. You were all false, meaningless, worthless. The gods too, whom the prophets call wise, are like those fleeting dreams, all false. Is there anyone who thinks that there are gods in heaven? There are not. No, not for any man who doesn't want to be a fool and put his trust in fables. Both worlds, the divine as well as the mortal, are equally chaotic. Look about you, anyone who denies it, for yourselves. See tyrants steal from the people. Men break their oaths by sacking cities, yet these men, these evil men, prosper more than those who live in peace and piety. And if the gods do shameful things, they're not gods. And this is the hateful thing, even a wise man. He believes in the gods and he believes in the prophecies and so he is destroyed. Those who know such men, they see how it happens. And I will prove it. I'll fly to where they say the high gods rule. I'll question almighty Zeus myself. I'll ask him what fate he has decreed for each and every one of us on earth. I'll try him in his own court, see if he can't prove to us how his rulings are just. And so saying, Bellerophon took down the golden bridle of Pegasus from where he kept it. And he took up the horn that he used to summon the horse, and he blew a long blast upon it, calling to Pegasus. Then he slept, and while he slept, the horse returned on the high winds. Bellerophon rose and came outside, and when he saw him and he knew the hero's mind, Pegasus shied and tried to flee. But Bellerophon threw his arm around the horse's great neck, and he placed the bit in his mouth. Then mounting Pegasus, Bellerophon drove him up into the chill bosom of the lonely air, rising higher and higher as they strove across the expanse of the Aegean Sea, towards the place where Mount Olympus thrust up to touch the clouds of heaven. And Bellerophon cried out, There, there today will we dine with the gods like the golden men of old. Let us see within the white stones of high Olympus. Take the measure of Zeus's bronze throne. Taste a drop of sweet nectar from some low god's cup? Or will we find the mountain empty, the court silent and echoing, every tall seat cold? Will it prove me true that this wild world is truly masterless? And Zeus heard his words. And looking out upon the winged horse and rider, as they rose amidst the islands of cloud and the fast-flowing rivers of the wind, the dread lord shook his head. These men of Corinth, he said, think themselves always equal to the gods. Sisyphus, their king, was insolent enough to chain death and try to escape from Hades. Now Bellerophon thinks that by the greatness of his own soul, he may rise to our halls and question me. Sisyphus now rolls the rock in Tartarus, and Bellerophon, I curse him to wander the earth for the remainder of his days. And Zeus raised a finger, and he blew forth from the tip a single gnat, a tiny midge fly, 
which spiraled from the mountain's summit on the buffeting wind and arced towards the white-winged Pegasus, and it stung the mighty horse in his great flank. Pegasus twisted and spiraled. Bellerophon held on only by the golden strap of the horse's bridle and by his hero's strength. But as the horse struggled to stay aloft, Bellerophon looked down, and he saw the great sea and the wide earth rolling out beneath him, and at that sight, even his indomitable heart was filled with vertiginous fear. His eyes grew wider and wider as he tried to take in their limits, until his heart grew so full, so round and so fit to burst, that he let go of the golden bridle. The great winds bore Pegasus up, up to the heights of heaven, and there the winged horse began to shine with divine fire amongst the constellations. But like a star dropped from the heavens, Bellerophon plunged down, down until he reached the black silver waves of the ocean, down into the arms of his father, down into the depths of the deep and dream-filled sea. The Hero's Dream is based on the mythological character of Bellerophon, whose story is recorded by a number of classical authors. Famed for riding Pegasus and defeating the monstrous Chimera, the figure of Bellerophon was later supplanted in Greek culture by the hero Perseus, who absorbed Pegasus into his own legend of his confrontation with Medusa. Lycia, the region that King Proteas dispatches Bellerophon to, is the same region in which Endymion's myth was set in the first episode. Xanthos was the ancient cultural, economic and political centre of Lycia, situated on the Xanthus River and famous for the royal tombs which are carved into the cliff bases above the river. Several different locations for the stalking grounds of the Chimera were suggested by ancient authors. Some place the beast in a ravine by Mount Kragos. Others point to the area near the ancient settlements of Phasis and Olympus. The region is marked by a field of volcanic geysers and was the site of a temple to Hephaestus, another element which we worked into our telling of the story. The beginning of Bellerophon's story is incomplete and shrouded in mystery. Different proposed translations of the name Bellerophon or Bellerophontes suggest it may mean wielder of missiles or slayer of Belarus. The hero was said to have been exiled from his home of Corinth for slaying either his brother, a nobleman, or even a local demon. Our telling combines these into a single character, a brother who is possessed by a malevolent demon and becomes a tyrant. Some of the stories claim that Bellerophon's killing was accidental or that he was blameless. In our interpretation, Bellerophon's slaying of a tyrant is portrayed as purposeful, but his slaying of his brother is an accident inasmuch as he is possessed or has disclaimed his own identity. Bellerophon is also the subject of a lost play by Euripides, telling how Bellerophon, after falling into poverty, attempts to fly to Mount Olympus on the back of Pegasus. In the original mythology, Bellerophon is said not to have fallen into the sea, but instead fallen upon the earth and into a bush of thorns which broke his hip. Lamed and blinded, Bellerophon was said to have spent the remainder of his life wandering the plains of Aelion in Sicilia, a territory even further east into Turkey than the Chimera's stalking grounds. This seems difficult to square with a flight to Olympus, located on the border of Thessaly in northern Greece, unless he fled to the plains of Aelion after his fateful fall. The story of Byblis who ran mad and was transformed by nymphs into a spring on account of her incestuous love for her brother, 
existed in several different versions and was connected to the Carian city of Miletus, a region which extended over the later kingdoms of Lydia and Lycia. Depending on the version of the tale, Byblus's incestuous passion is either unrequited or reciprocated by her brother Calamus. In either case, he flees when he is unable to face the implications. The Pyrene Spring is a large open-air public basin in Corinth, fed by water spouts and a channel, and was said to have been created by the river god Asopus at the request of Sisyphus. According to legend, Sisyphus founded the city of Corinth before his imprisonment and punishment in Tartarus. When he was king of that place, he saw Zeus bearing Asopus's daughter Aegina away in the shape of a great eagle, but when the god arrived seeking his daughter, Sisyphus refused to give this information until the river god created the spring. There was also a lower spring, which may have been fed by the upper one, and which flowed into a series of stone cisterns and basins at the heart of the city. One story states that the lower spring was created when Pegasus struck his hoof against the earth. But an older story says that Pyrene was a nymph and lover of Poseidon, who was transformed like Byblus into a spring on account of her unceasing tears. Polyides, who appeared in our last episode, plays a pivotal role in Bellerophon's story by instructing the hero to pray to Athena and Poseidon. From the available sources, it is not immediately clear where Polyides lives in this myth. He was a Corinthian, however his legend shows that as a seer he travelled widely. He worked, as we saw in the last episode, in the service of King Minos in Crete. Some accounts of the myth suggest that Bellerophon met Polyides in Lycia. However, since the Pyrene Spring where Bellerophon captured the Pegasus was in Corinth, we chose to locate Polyides there where Bellerophon has returned seeking knowledge of how to defeat the Chimera. One prevalent moral code in this story is the concept of Xenia, the sacred law of hospitality. This custom prescribed a religious obligation to uphold a sacred bond of friendship and protection between guests and their hosts. Once hospitality was offered, it was a religious taboo to violate these obligations and the primacy of this custom is demonstrated by the fact that Bellerophon is twice protected by it, in spite of the fact that he's been accused of attempting to rape the queen. The custom and concept of Phiazenia was underpinned by myth and by folklore. The idea was that kindness should be extended to any guest or stranger, since the gods sometimes visit us in disguise. This idea was previously expressed in our telling of the Endymion myth, when Endymion entertained Zeus at his fire. Bellerophon's attempted ascent to Olympus is a fine example of the motif of hubris in Greek myth. Hubris was defined as a form of outrage, an offence against the natural order of the world, which was how challenging the gods was perceived. It was associated with foolishness, arrogance and overconfidence, and particularly a lack of humility toward others an attempt to establish one's own authority or dominance over them, or an encroachment upon the established rights of others. This gives nuance to Bellerophon's offence in flying to Olympus, not simply in flying to Olympus to challenge the gods, but also thinking him superior to them, or as competent to question their agency in establishing natural and moral laws. The surviving fragments of the Euripides play in which Bellerophon commits his act of hubris are famous for placing atheistic sentiments in the hero's mouth. Bellerophon questions belief in the gods and calls them a fable. And in our episode, the sentiments of that Bellerophon fragment are combined with lines that Euripides writes for the character of Iphigenia and Orestes in the play Iphigenia in Tauris where Orestes decries the fickleness of the gods by declaring them to be as false as dreams. Another Greek play called Sisyphus has a character claim that the gods were invented to frighten men into moral action. And the philosophical thinker Xenophanes famously said that if cows and horses had hands, then horses would draw the forms of God like horses and cows like cows. In Plato's writing, he depicts Socrates as disbelieving traditional myths because they depicted the gods in immoral acts. 
And so in this vein in our story, I've reconciled Bellerophon's fantastical history with his skepticism by making his doubts of this nature, a critique of the morality of the gods. If they don't uphold moral law amongst themselves or in their rule over the world, then they're not gods. Because by some people's definitions, like Socrates or Plato, that is not what a god is supposed to be. But that's not to say that Bellerophon's own morality isn't problematic. It wouldn't be much of a stretch to say that Bellerophon has issues with women. To begin with, his journey is bound up with an intensely negative female archetype which appears in some myths. The unfaithful queen who tries to seduce the hero and then makes a false accusation of assault against them. The same character appears famously in the biblical story of Joseph in the shape of Queen Zuleika, the wife of the pharaoh Potiphar. It also shows up in other Greek myths. In our sources, Bellerophon's heroic victories are supposed to vindicate him and prove his innocence of this crime. The queen is later ritually humiliated by Bellerophon and the queen's daughters are also made to suffer into the bargain by being driven mad. Some later commentators disclaimed this part of the myth because they said it cast Bellerophon in a bad light. But frankly, all of the logic at play here is problematic. And when I read these myths, the misogynistic assumptions of Greek culture are on full display here. And Bellerophon's anger, entitlement and contempt for women seem baked into the legend. In 2020, I don't think that we should give Bellerophon the full benefit of the doubt. So in this telling, Bellerophon may profess his innocence, but I rather think that he protests too much. Bellerophon's myth contains another interesting symbolic and thematic depiction of female sexuality. When the women of Xanthos halt his march across the plain by lifting their skirts and exposing their vulvas to him. This is a beguiling incident, and it's difficult to know exactly how to interpret it. My first thought was that it might resemble the biblical story of Sodom, when Lot and his friends offered up their daughters to be raped instead of them. Once again, the idea that this offended Bellerophon's modesty would make it another sexist trope that advances ideas about the hero's virtue. However, there does seem to be another idea that might be implied here, that there's some kind of inherent power in female sexuality that is contemptuous of and capable of unmanning the masculine power of the hero. This is most clearly signalled by the fact that not only Bellerophon but also Pegasus and Poseidon are turned back by the display, even though respect for female sexuality isn't exactly a hallmark of the gods. In the end, it probably amounts to a bit of both. It turns out that there are examples of this phenomenon scattered throughout mythology and history where women shame or express their contempt for male aggressors by exposing themselves. In some cultures, the vulva was believed to be apotropaic, as having talismanic power to ward off evil. In China, there was a belief that menstrual blood was an effective deterrent against enemies during a siege. In some cases, it seems that the incident was bound up with the idea that there was something special about the sexuality of women who either belonged to a special group like the royal family um, or the sacred priesthood, or were otherwise bound up with religious and social taboos. So there is an idea of sacred feminine power here, but it's not exactly free of sexism. In many cases, it's based on sacred ownership of female sexuality or fear of women's sexuality. But certainly some are keen to celebrate this act of feminine defiance and claim its spirit for the feminist movement. This year, the writer Catherine Blackledge published a book called Raising the Skirt, which is inspired by this incident in the Bellerophon myth. And the artist Nicola Hunter has also developed a collaborative arts project called Raising the Skirt, which draws on similar material. Fair warning, if you choose to Google that, it is not safe for work. Next week, hear the stories of not one, but four tyrant kings, and how the gods' punishment for their sins is revealed to them by their dreams. You've been listening to Lore and Legend, The Gates of Dream, Episode 5, The Hero's Dream. Our story today was interpreted and performed by Rick Scott. 
This episode featured music by Michael Levy, Sakilo, and Caleb Hennessy. Check the episode notes to find links where you can hear their music and support their creativity. Additional sounds and music were sourced from the community at freesound.org. Full audio credits are available at www.lawandlegend.co.uk. For news about upcoming episodes and more info about our stories and their sources in world folklore, find us at www.lawandlegend.co.uk or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Of Law and Legend. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, please consider making a one-time donation through Ko-Fi or supporting the podcast through our creators page on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash law and legend. All of those links are available on the website. Thank you for listening, story folk. <laughs>